It is Tuesday, November 24th, 2020. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the the LDS Live podcast. Let me just tell you a few things here. I have been having a problem with Zoom disconnecting on me, and then I did a podcast last week or attempted to, and what happened? Well, I couldn't upload the file. I think it's because somehow the file got corrupted with Zoom or something. So we're going to try this again. So this may disconnect, and if it does, um, you may not notice it on your end because I'm going to edit the, I'm going to edit this file to death if that happens. But I'm just letting you know, in case, and uh, you know, some of you probably been wondering where's Kevin been. Well, I've been having issues, so. Anyway, let's get started. Heather Bailey is my guest today. We're going to talk about depression. You wrote a book called, what's your book called? Undepressed Mom? Yes, it's The Undepressed Heart, A Mommy's Guide Up and Out of Depression. Okay. Before we get into your book, let's talk about your childhood. Now, since we did do the, when we attempted to do the podcast, I'm going to speed this up a little bit. You told me something that I found very intriguing. You were homeschooled. How was that as a kid growing up? Uh, yes, I, I actually loved it, and it, it went really well. Um, basically, I schooled myself. Like I, We had eight kids in our family, so kind of a lot for my mom to handle. But I loved reading. I loved studying. So I just read a ton and learned that way. How did you do homeschooling? Because obviously um, you you and I went to school probably when the online thing was just beginning. I mean just beginning. Yeah. Uh, so how did you how did you do that? Did you did your mom subscribe to a homeschool co-op and they sent you a whole bunch of pam, uh, packets? How did no, you do that? there there wasn't really a lot of people homeschooling back then. Um there was a store nearby called the Teacher's Closet that my mom would buy like workbooks for like first, second, third, fourth grade, um, just things for us to work through. Um, but really, there was not a lot of homeschooling resources. I mean, now you can Google it and there's like so many options. It's almost overwhelming as a mom. Oh my but gosh. <laughs> there's so much out there, which is amazing. I love, I love that. Now, I have a confession to make, and I am sorry that I thought this way, but it's just what I, I had, I knew homeschoolers in high school, and they were weird, no offense mm-hmm. to you, and I, I just, I did not like anybody that was homeschooled at the time, and now I feel bad about that, because I've met some homeschoolers since then that are really cool people. And, and you were, know, oh, oh sorry, ahead. keep going. Oh, they were just weird. They were socially awkward. They were, I could tell they were very sheltered. You know, when I was in high school, I was talking about heavy metal, alternative rock, chasing women and nice, sexy ladies. And, you know, they, they just seemed to be in their own little world. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't, I, I feel bad. That, that was just my experience back in my freshman year. Yeah. And that, honestly, my husband kind of had that same idea. He knew one or two people that were homeschooled. He's like, they're kind of, I don't know, just socially awkward. Or, I mean, that was kind of the stigma for a while there is like, oh, they don't ever see anybody or talk to anybody. What about their social life kind of a thing? But then uh, luckily he, he met me and he he's like, oh, 
you're not odd at all. This is good. And it kind of helped that I'd already graduated high school and already had my first college degree uh, by the time I was 18. And so he was like, okay, maybe there is something to this homeschool thing. Yeah. So I have to ask, did people think that you were weird? I, I'm talking mostly about your neighbors, people in your ward. Did you ever get this ick, ick, ick look or what's wrong with you? Or how's, how did that go over? Hmm. Well, since I've been homeschooled ever since first grade, it kind of was just what, what I did. And luckily we're members of the church. And so I got to know all, all my friends through primary and young women's and, you know, we got together once or twice a week through the church programs. And then from there, I mean, as a young kid, also, it's a lot easier to make friends when you're eight or nine, you find your best friend, like you, you see them once and they're best friends for life. And so it helped that I was homeschooled from that younger age. Um, so if you kind of just jump into it as like a high schooler, it might I don't know, it might be more difficult or different, but unless you have that community support and if you go to church and you get to know everyone in your neighborhood, it's, it made it a lot easier for me that way. And I'm sure it helped that you didn't move around a lot. When I was growing up, we moved around probably, oh, two, about three times. And once was to rental house, but then the other time was we actually moved. Uh, yeah, then I did move to Salt Lake right before my senior year. So you probably had an advantage in the sense you were in the same house your whole life, correct? Or at least throughout you know, at least your childhood um, until you were 18 or whatever. Well, until I was nine, we actually moved to like maybe six or seven different houses. But since oh I was gosh. younger... It was a lot easier at that young age to just make best friends with the girl next door. But yeah. after that, getting into the teen years, um, luckily from the age 10 and on, we were in the same house. It would have been more difficult had I been in those teenage years having to completely uproot, oh, yeah. make new friends. That would be difficult. Oh, yeah. Especially in my case, my parents were very strict. You know, you can't date non-members. You can't do this. It just, you know, fortunately, my senior year, I didn't have to worry about any of that because I was in a place where the members were highly in the majority. Mm -hmm. But uh, I actually talked about that on a podcast and how to this day, I do not agree with what my parents did in that regard for several reasons, but we won't go there. Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk about your book, though. Um, so what inspired you to write this book? Oh, wow. Um, a lot of it is my husband and I love to learn and, you know, apply all these new principles and things we learn. And he actually works with people at his clinics on a weekly basis. And I mean, depression is pretty, I mean, it's a pretty big problem out there in the world. And after working with hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people, he started to notice these patterns of, like these six different distinct stages in the depression. And he found that, oh, when you're at these lower levels, this is what helps. When you're at the higher levels, it's a totally different thing that helps lift you up. What do you think? I have to interrupt uh, my questions and answers here. What do you think of what President Nelson told us to do over the weekend? Well, on Friday until Thursday, I might even keep doing it longer. What do you think of the idea of starting a gratitude journal on social media? Oh, wow. I love that. Uh, gratitude. Um, as you 
going back to the stages, each stage one all the way up to stage six has its own unique thing that helps. And to connect yourself back up to that full connection, to feeling fully joyful, that gratitude, sincere gratitude and celebration is what connects you back to God. And I really, it's, it brings joy into your heart. And so if people are, I mean, it's amazing to look on social media right now and see like all these positives and what everyone loves about their life. I'm like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if it could be like this all the time, if we did continue this sincere gratitude. Yeah, by the way, I think it's helping a lot. I don't want to make any uh, misconceptions. That doesn't mean I'm not concerned about the future of this country or any, I'm deeply concerned about the future of this country. But I agree with you, Heather. It's, it, I'll tell you what it's done for me. When I first, I did my gratitude journal right away. Actually, I did it the day before President Nelson did it without the hashtag, give, give mm-hmm. thanks. So obviously that just a few minutes after he said, make a gratitude journal, I started with the hashtag. And I didn't think much of it until that night when I was reading other posts, it was actually fun. It was it actually put the fun back into social media. Yeah. And it was kind of addicting. I couldn't get off social media for once. I mean, for once I was actually liking social media. It kind of reminded me of how social media was when it first got started. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and uh, let me tell you here in Montana, the whole state is pretty much locked down mm-hmm. and I'm against it. I, I have a whole attitude about, you know, this is what's happening is not the proper role of government, but it is what it is. It's locked down. can't go out to eat. can't do hardly anything. And so I am liking this gratitude thing quite often, quite a bit, actually. I know it's not going to continue. I know that we have a lot of things that we should be worried about, especially the political landscape. But I think President Nelson did the right thing. Like I said, I really did not think much of it when I started mine with the hashtag. As the day progressed, I thought, wow, President Nelson was definitely inspired to do this. Yeah. And that, that reminds me of a motto within our family is prepare for the worst that might happen yet expect the best. And what I mean by that is you've mentioned all the problems in the world and yeah, there is a lot more that we could be doing to change a lot of the things in these worlds that definitely needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet we want to focus more on the possible solutions and if we're more in that gratitude and joy for our own life, I think it opens our eyes more to seeing things as they are, yet seeing them as they could be, like start moving towards actual solutions. I think a lot of people on social media before were just, they'd say, oh, be aware of this problem, be aware of this problem. But wait, where's the solutions? We got to be moving towards the solutions. That's true. Well, um, so let's get back to your book here. So you said that somebody told you that you were worthless and not worth being in a relationship with. And I'm under the impression that was kind of your starting point of depression, correct? Yes, that was the deepest, lowest down I'd ever felt. why Why were you told that, if you don't mind getting into it? 
Uh oh, you there? Oops, hold on. Are you there? Okay, I can hear you again. Okay. Um, yeah, so, yeah, why were you told that and who told you that, if you don't mind getting into that a little bit? Um, it, it was someone close to me, and I feel like they were kind of pushing the boundaries. They were asking me um, <laughs> if something was okay, and I was so overwhelmed. I Really, I was very overwhelmed at that point in my life that – so it wasn't necessarily the comment that was so destructive. It was more, I was at such a breaking point that that comment just went straight in and I just broke. I guess it was the wrong comment at the wrong time for me. Yeah. And it, it was hard. So were you expressing, were you, were you suffering any depression before that? Was that the straw that broke the camel's back or was that really when this started? Hmm. I, I was definitely in like a lot of frustration and overwhelm. So if you read my book, I talk a lot about being at that heart level, above yeah. heart level, you're able to handle things a lot better. So I, at that point, I was below that heart level. And then that comment just pulled me right down into the deepest stage one. Yeah. How long were you in stage one? Oh, if I, I think it was, I wasn't that apathetic as probably for that day or two, I was deep, deep down. And then after that, I kind of slowly went up maybe one level kind of, I was at least at the stage two and three of just not feeling happy, not feeling like myself back into that overwhelm and frustration um, for quite a few months, but the deepest level didn't last more than a couple of days. Like I couldn't imagine someone, I know there's a lot of people right now, probably at that stage one apathetic, can't get out of bed and it hurts. It's dark. I, I don't know how they do that for so long. It, I mean, that would be so, so difficult to try to handle. Yeah, you're right. Well, so you did mention that your your daughter Ashley came in and asked if you wanted to do something fun and she got some books that you like to read and uh, that made your day. But let me ask you though, if it was someone else like uh, your husband or me, would it would the reaction have been different because I would think that your daughter asking you, I think she was what, 5 years old at the time? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure that you thought, oh, well, it's a little kid here. Little kids are sensitive to things like this. I don't know if your daughter knew exactly what was going on. Maybe it, she did feel that you were sad, maybe. Would you have reacted different, let's say, if it was your mom or someone else? It's, it's very possible. I know kids, they're very heartwarming. They just melt your heart and it helps open you up to suggestions. I think of as someone that I know cares deeply for me, if it had been my husband, I probably would have let him hold me in his arms and I would have cried for a long time. And he would have asked me like, are you ready to share with me what's going on? Um, but I think if it had been someone that's a little bit more distanced, it would, um, if they approached me in a loving way of like, 
of a lot of validation. Like I can see that you're hurting really, really hard right now. Um, if they just came in and simply validated, I think I would have been more open, but if they had just come in and said, Hey, what's wrong? Like, why don't you just get up and take care of yourself? Like that, <laughs> there would have been a big wall and a push away, like just go away, leave me alone. Yeah. So let's talk about the stages. Cause you mentioned four stages. So let's, uh, let's talk about each one briefly here. Stage one is what everyone thinks of as depression is just very numb, very apathetic. Um, like you're so heavy laden with this emotion that really it's difficult to even get out of bed. There is zero motivational energy. It's just like, nope, I don't care. I'm not going to do anything. Uh, yeah, that thought of I don't care is kind of a constant. Like if you think, oh, I should get up and go do something like I don't care. I don't care. It just keeps kind of repeating over and over. And it's, yeah, it's a very dark, difficult place to be in. And the only thing to lift yourself up from there is to validate. And validating shows your mind that, yes, I actually do care that I'm feeling this crappy. Um, I do care. And you just say, oh, I am feeling this and this doesn't feel good. I'm feeling depressed and this completely sucks. This is not fun. And that lifts you up just a little bit to that next step. Yes, I'd imagine. So when your daughter came and asked if you want to read a book, would you say that maybe you were getting out of stage one and going into stage two, perhaps? I believe so. Just by her coming in and her, her being there said, I see you. I can see that you are hurting a lot and I care a lot. And this must be really difficult you difficult for you. She didn't say those, but that was just the feeling. So I think by her coming in and holding me and letting me just cry for, well, it was probably like five, 10 minutes. I just cried with her just holding me there. Uh, that, that was enough to help lift me up. Once you started reading the book, I assume whatever books you enjoyed reading together, um, you went to stage two, correct? Yeah. Okay. So explain, by the way, what are some good things to do in stage one that you don't care, you know, like you don't want to get out of bed or whatever? The, the best and really only thing you can do is validate your feelings and say, I'm feeling this. Like you could even... I mean, if you're able to stand up, stomp your feet, say, I'm feeling depressed and this completely sucks. This does not feel good. Uh, just showing yourself that this is how I'm feeling and I don't like how it feels. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk. What, what is stage two? Stage two, you're feeling a little bit better. You're kind of into the, I want to want to feel better down at the stage one, it was like, I don't want to feel better. Get away from me. But moving up, it's okay. I want to want to feel better. And you don't, you still don't have any motivation to really move or do anything, but you are able to receive passive nourishment. And if we think of your physical body, the stage two is felt kind of right around the navel area. And that's where we as babies uh, in the womb before we're born, we're passively nourished. And so you tend to feel the stage two right around the abdomen. And when you're feeling that, I mean, you do start to 
stage one was numb. And then stage two, you're feeling all that hurt and like everything that was there before you're, you're feeling all that again. And the best thing to do here is passive nourishment. So that could be, uh, if you're a reader and love to read books, read something, you could listen to one of your favorite podcasts. You could watch some funny YouTube videos. And the point here is to just get a little smile on your face. Um, you're not going to go straight to feeling like full blown happy again, but you can at least kind of start to smile a little, start to like, okay, maybe I do want to feel better. And yeah, so give yourself as much of that passive nurturing care that you can. Okay, so let me just uh, give you something that I went through. And this is the first time I've actually been a little open about this on my podcast. There are parts of my personal life I'm very open about, there are parts that I'm not. I went through a stage of depression back in August, July, well, probably started in August just because I've been on lockdown due to certain circumstances. No, I'm not in prison or any of that, or I wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> Almost everyone's in lockdown now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, where I'm at is in lockdown. And it got to the point where I wasn't really even enthused about doing this podcast. I would do it, but it just seemed very mechanical. I did it because I felt like I had to, you know, I paid 20 bucks to keep this thing up and running $20 a month through my podcast provider. And now some of you say, well, why don't you get a free service? Oh, because this service is really good. I like the service. I like the tech support and all that. So I keep it around. So anyway, I just, it just felt mechanical. Yeah. Once I was doing the podcast, I kind of got into it a little bit. And I just, I, I never was at the point where I could never get out of bed. It wasn't that bad, but it just, I just wasn't motivated to do much of anything. But then when I, you know, my brother called up and said, oh, you're going to Idaho to see your sisters for a while. You'll be there. He told me from when to when. And as you know, for those of you that listen to the podcast, I did one podcast in Idaho, one in Oregon. And even before that, I started feeling a little better after I talked to my family about what it was that I didn't like about being in lockdown and things like that. And then my brother mentioned, oh, we're thinking about sending you to Idaho. Right away, my spirits went up just a little bit. So what stage do you think I was in? What stage do you think I went to? Okay. You were definitely before in the um, below heart level, probably around two where it's Again, you said you weren't so deep down, but you still no. just kind of didn't have heart to do anything. You're like, this feels routine, mechanical. Um, so you're probably between two and three of, you were kind of probably feeling like just not quite like yourself. Some people say it's like being in a funk almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your heart wasn't quite in it. And so it was, it was, you're probably two or three, just right below that heart level. Okay. So do you think once the vacation was mentioned and I started becoming more uplifted and even more so when the vacation actually was finalized, what stage do you think I was in at that point? Ooh, yes. That definitely sounds like three where looking forward to something ignites 
that spark in the heart of like, Ooh, I could do this. I get to do this. And it feels like once you, it was finalized, it was on the schedule, you knew it was happening. You could look forward to it and like, Ooh, yes, I'm going to do this. And then you actually went out and that, I feel like that got you back into that, back into your heart there. Yeah. Let me just ask you about antidepressants. Do you think we as a society are too quick to say to somebody, oh, you need medication because you're depressed. Do you think that that is the absolute last resort we should go to, if any? Hmm. That, that's a very interesting question. I'll start it with, I feel like if someone feels that they need that help, then go get it. Um, I, I would never tell someone not to, especially if they felt like I need this, this will help. Then I'm 100% supportive of you taking care of yourself. And then back to your question is, it's possible that I think when people don't understand these six different stages and what to do to help lift yourself up and people say, oh, just exercise or choose to be happy or just do this, it doesn't help because a lot of those suggestions are for the higher stages. Once you're actually starting to feel better and feel like yourself again. Those things help keep moving you up. Uh, but I, it really depends on the person. If someone has been stuck in stage one, apathetic, hating life for a long time, then I would say go get as much help as you can. Uh, if you can move through these stages on your own, start to work through that. But then there is does come a point you do need to reach out and ask for someone for help, um, whether that's a professional or, or someone. Um, but that's, that's the next step. We'll, we'll talk about stage four in a, in a moment, but I, maybe some people are too quick to jump to it. Maybe, but I think when they don't know anything else and it's either in their mind, the options are be depressed or get medication, then it seems like medication is the best choice. But when you open your understanding to realizing, oh, I have a lot more options. I'm at stage two. I need to passively nurture myself and that will lift me up to the stage three. Now I need to do this. I, I, I really think people just don't know what to do. And in that case, do what you know to do that would be best. But if more people understood this, I think a lot less people would need to go to the medication. Some people still will. Some people, um, there could be some sort of deficiencies that their body really does need that. But for the majority of people, I think it might become unnecessary if they just understood what they could do. Yeah. So what are some good activities to do in stage uh, three? I think this is where you mentioned, no, we're in stage two, aren't we? Um, I think we moved up to three. Okay. So what are, well, let's go back to stage two. So stage two, you mentioned that the best thing you could do is watch a good movie, um, read a good book. I, I guess probably you and your daughter, once she said, well, do you want to do something fun? I guess that was probably in the beginning phase of stage two, because you actually did comply yeah. and you said, yeah, let's read a book. And you did. So, and you mentioned pamping yourself, uh, you know, having your daughter do your nails or whatever, maybe listen to some good music. Uh, what, what else are some good activities to do in stage two? 
All right. So you're needing that passive nurturing. One of my favorite is taking a warm bath. Cause that almost just it's warmth that's coming into your body. And it feels like, I think warm warmth is, is very nurturing. So like a warm, cozy blanket sitting by a fire, something like that. Um, it depends on what kind of speaks to each individual person. Uh, but you're not going to want to like go out and go somewhere yet, or maybe you are, but most likely you'll be sitting on your couch with your phone, watching videos or, uh, listening to some jokes or reading a joke book. Um, yeah, anything that you can kind of sit in one place and start to smile a little bit. Um, I mean, if you love playing board games or something like that, maybe that could be helpful. Okay, so let's talk about stage three, where we were headed. Uh, explain to us what stage three is and what are some good activities in stage three? Yeah, stage three is when you're feeling like, okay, I'm stable, I can handle my life, um, things are going, going all right, I'm, I'm doing okay. Like if you ask someone how they're doing, they'll say, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm doing okay. And you want to, this is when you want to feel better. You have, you're starting to get that motivation of like, okay, I could get up and do something to help myself feel better. And the best thing to do here is to start to look forward to something of like, Ooh, I could, if you're an artist, like, Ooh, I could create this new painting or my husband loves cooking. So he'll plan a whole menu for the next month and say, Ooh, I can cook this. I could do this. I've never made this recipe before. Um, so looking forward to either creating or experiencing something, you could plan a date night out. Um, I mean, even if it's something simple, just planning, having something to look forward to that kind of gets you excited. Like, Oh, I get to do this. That ignites that spark within your heart. And if you have, if you're full of that nurturing and care, then that spark will ignite your heart, your heart's fire back on again. Yeah, I was definitely in stage three on my vacation. I can tell you that. What are some good things to do in stage four? All right, up to stage four. This is when you must reach out and ask someone for help. Uh, that could be a licensed therapist or like a doctor, or it could even be as simple as your spouse or best friend, maybe your parent, um, maybe someone that ministers over your family or a religious leader. Um, but the reason why you want to reach out and ask for help is that reconnects you at that higher level. Um, if stage one is felt in the lowest part of your body, stage two is felt around that tummy area, Stage three is right around the heart area. And then we're moving up into the voice and the stage four, right around the voice area. When you ask for help, the reason that's important is it connects you to other people and it shows you that other people do care about you, that um, it, it helps you strengthen those connections and relationships. And it builds a community of support around you to help keep you up. Um, if you just settle for being, okay, I'm good. I'm above heart level right now. It's really easy to get hit emotionally again and fall back down. Um, but as you move yourself up 
and stage four connect, reconnect to people around you, it starts to build that community of support and helps you to stay, stay up a lot easier because you know that there's people you can rely on. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about asking for help here. Where do you draw the line between asking for help and knowing that you're self-reliant and you can do something on your own? Okay. Um, I do believe that we were put here on earth with other people for a reason. Um, there, wow, there's a lot we could be, could be said here. Um, be self-reliant. This is where you want to be emotionally, spiritually self-reliant is you're working to lift yourself up through these stages. Um, yet you also want connections with other people. And so what you don't want to do is go up to someone and say, I'm feeling terrible and it's hurting Like all this complaining and just dumping this emotional garbage on them. You don't want to do that. If you have a lot of that in your mind, you're going to want to write it down, shred it up, throw it away, just get it out of your mind. But there does come a point where like, okay, I got rid of the charge, but this feeling, this disconnect from other people still here. So you want to, when you go to someone, like if it's a spouse or a friend, always ask permission first say, Hey, I've been feeling kind of off lately. Um, could, is there any way, are you in a place that you could help me right now? If they say yes, then you can proceed and say, okay, I, I need help with this. I felt this. And what do you think I can do about it? Um, but if they say no, like if your spouse is overly em <laughs> emotionally charged as well, like there was a disagreement or they're just in a really bad place right now too. Don't go talk to someone that's feeling low themselves. Um, and they'll probably say, no, I'm not in a place that I could help you. Sorry. Uh, so just go find other people that find someone that is above heart level and ask them permission if they could help you. Or if it's a professional, then obviously you go through setting an appointment and, and then of course you have permission because you have an appointment with them. Yes, absolutely. Now let's uh, just go ahead, uh, stage five and six really quick, and then we'll get into some other issues. How's that? Sounds great. Okay, so walk us through stage five. All right, stage five. Um, if we're going on the physical, that's kind of right around the eye area. And this is your vision. And you want to start seeing a lot more of the good in the world. The best way to do that, to reconnect, is to go out in nature. Um, I mean, even if you're in New York City, you can still look at the sky. There's still some plants there. There's Central Park. Um, I went there for my birthday this year. I'm like, oh, wow, there really is. It's a lot of buildings here, oh, <laughs> at yeah. least in the main part there. Uh, but most, any, anywhere you are, you can go out in nature, even barefoot, go walk on the grass in your front yard. And nature is very calming. It helps slow yes, you it down, is. helps quiet your mind. And it brings a lot more of that peace when you reconnect with the nature. Yeah, let me ask you this about nature, because when I was younger, especially I really started noticing it. Well, I, this happened to me in high school, but I really didn't start adding everything up until I was probably in my early 20s. 
When the weather would change from winter to spring, my spirits were literally uplifted overnight. But then in October, when the weather would change from warm to cold, I would usually feel depression for about four days. I, I wasn't in stage one or two, I don't think, because I still went out and did things with people. I still had to go to school and had to continue to function in life. But I just felt this emptiness, like I was empty inside, and it would last four to five days. And then I would get back to normal. But it never happened when the winter would turn to spring. And it never happened when I lived in Louisiana or Arkansas. And I think it's because the change was so gradual that by the time it got that cold, I was already used to it. And it was such a gradual change. Uh, what, would, what, what, what would you say to something like that, speaking of going out in nature or something? Because I'm sure I'm not the only one who has this issue. Oh, yeah. Um, I know. I've heard of a lot of people feeling with the weather change, it... I wonder if it's to some people, it feels like now I have nothing to look forward to. Could be. Maybe, maybe in school, like, oh, summer is amazing. I love this. And then uh, that weather change signals like, oh, it's school time. And I mean, a lot of people <laughs> uh, high school are unhappy in school. Some aren't. Yeah. Some love it. But um it's, <laughs> I haven't heard a lot of high schoolers getting up and be like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for the day. Um, and so maybe they're like, oh, this is, I don't have anything to look forward to anymore. Yeah, that, that could be. I wonder too, if a lot of it in Louisiana, I never felt depressed in Louisiana in spite of the weather change, other than the fact that the weather change was so gradual as I was doing so much in Louisiana. I had freedom that I'd never had before as a blind person, um, you know, because I was in training on how to cross busy streets and everything. So I was going a whole bunch of places just on my own. And I wonder if that had something to do with me not being depressed in Louisiana in spite of the weather. Yeah, that's, that's very possible since you had, it seems like you were progressing, you were excited about that progress, like, ooh, now I have this freedom, now I can do this. And it seems like you were staying, staying up in your heart. Cause like, Ooh, I can do all this now. It seems like you were excited and starting to love your life a lot more at that point. Oh yeah. Because not only was I doing things, I was far away from home. I was, I felt like in a way, I felt like I was living my dream, not all of it, but certainly part of it. And it was interesting. And we'll, we'll get into this too. I went back for, this was back in 2004, for those of you that want a timeline. So I went back to Salt Lake over Christmas to see my dad. And then we went up to Idaho to see some other family. And after I had come back from Salt Lake back to Louisiana in early January of 2005, I really felt pretty depressed for a good two weeks. Now, here again, I wasn't in stage one. I, I got out of bed and did the things that I was supposed to do to finish up my training, but oh, wow, I was awfully depressed. And I wonder if that's because I had such a good Christmas break, such a good time in Salt Lake, just wandering around the streets on my own, 
Now I come back to Louisiana, like you said, I didn't feel like I had anything to look forward to other than finishing. And another part of it could have been too, because I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I was finished. And that was on my mind. I kept having people ask, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I don't know. Don't ask me. I don't know. Do you think <laughs> that was part of it? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and I know they I, meant I well. Them. I just got annoyed with the question. Yeah. I know they meant well. Oh, oh, of course. But it's, you're like, I don't know, leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I see a lot of people, they have either like a life stream or a big goal and they reach it. And then they feel this massive depression because like, oh, I just completed my life's mission. Now, what do I have to do? And so if you only have that one goal, um, it reminds me of the movie Tangled where she says like, but what if I get my dream, then he says, uh, then you create a new one. And it's best to have that next step in your mind before you complete that first goal. Otherwise that depression can set in of like, oh, well, the best is gone. Now I have nothing to look forward to. Yeah. And I was just debating, okay, do I want to go to college in Louisiana? Do I want to go back home? Do I, what am I, what do I, I knew I was going to go to college. I just didn't know where. And I still didn't know what I was going to major in. I was wavering back and forth between psychology and communications. And it was just, I went to Washington, D.C. to do some lobbying for the blind community. And I'll confess, one of the reasons I went to D.C. was to run away from this problem. And I suppose that that's probably normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then once I figured out where I was going and what I was doing, it was fine. But, oh, especially the first two weeks, it was like a big drop down from stage six to probably stage two. Speaking of stage six, let's uh, talk about stage six and then we'll get into some other things. Oh, yes. This is where you've connected to yourself. You've connected to other people. You've connected to nature and the goodness of the world around you. And this is where you are, you're just one step away from completely obliterating the depression to feeling like just this joy, this immense joy. And I love that you talked about President Nelson and the gratitude journal this week and hopefully a lot of people continue that up after this week um, because at this last stage what you want to do to have that last and final connection connecting up to god and if you believe more in like the divine or universe whatever it is that source of light and love and to me that's god heavenly father and the thing that you do to connect is celebration and gratitude, especially this week of giving thanks, um, gratitude is the sincerest form. So the sincerest form of gratitude is that celebration. So this week we all celebrate, or a lot of us are celebrating with, even if it's just the family within our household or one friend, um, for most people, this is a week of celebration and giving that thanks is that gratitude is that sincere form, that sincere form of gratitude is what connects you back to God. And, and then you are joyful, you are peaceful, you are loving. And I mean, those people that are fully connected at that high level, they're doing amazing things in this world. Uh, look at our prophet and how much 
joy and inspiration he is lifting people to to become to become joyous and loving and i i love watching him and listening to how much joy he infuses into his messages to us i i absolutely love that yeah and i i think yeah i like I said, it's definitely uplifted my spirits. I know things aren't perfect, and I know eventually reality is going to kick in here again. But I think President Nelson's idea is to heal the word, heal the world. And my gosh, we need healing, don't we? After what we've been oh, through this yes. year, I think we can all oh, agree yes. on that. Yes, um, definitely. Now, in your book, you mentioned going to a boot camp of some sort, and the person, I guess the instructor, just really really put you down and i'm sure it was a i know it was a setup because of what i've read in your book but he basically said you're worthless you you don't have any love or whatever and you ended up loving him back do you think that was because you knew what you were getting into and you knew that they were going to do this to you much like when you go into the military you know that people are going to be hard on you and tough on you much like when I went to Louisiana, I knew it was going to be like a boot camp for blind people. And yes, the instructors were hard on me at times, but I knew that before going in and I just put up with it and just got better over time. Do you think that's why you felt love for this person? Because you knew what you were getting into? I did know. I didn't quite know how intense it would be. I, they did give us instructions that the best way to get through this next exercise is to be in your heart. And I thought like, okay, the best way for me to be in my heart is to forgive and send love back. And so I mentally prepared myself. And so when I stood up and they started um, just tearing me down, you know, like the, the worthless or just all, all the garbage. Um, it was since I knew what to do ahead of time, it was easier in my mind. I was like, okay, sending it to them. And I thought of all the people in my life I had ever judged. I'm like, oh, I've totally judged this person, this person. And I said, will you please forgive me? I, I judged you. I might've hurt you. And that wasn't okay. Will you please forgive me? And I imagined myself sending that love back and I, that definitely helped me. I did look around the room though. And a lot of people had a really difficult time with that exercise because in their really? mind, yeah, in their mind, their thoughts were already tearing them down. And so when the people were verbalizing those words back at them of, you know, you're worthless or you're stupid or all these things um, that we think in our heads, you know, it's like having a bully in your head, just tearing you down. Um, I think they started to believe it and it was really difficult for them. Like few people actually fainted because it was, it was difficult. Um, but since I knew like, okay, the best way to stay in my heart is to forgive. I, I was able to remain in that heart space and not take anything that was said personally. Uh, I know it's, it's harder when it's someone close to you that says those those criticisms and you start to believe it. You take it personally because you think that this person only speaks truth. Therefore, what they say is true. Therefore, I am a terrible person. Um, I think it's easier to take it personally um, when you're not expecting it or if it's someone close to you. But if you remember that 
it's kind of like holding up a mirror. If someone's saying those negative things to you, really, those are just the thoughts that are in their own head that they see in themselves and they're verbalizing their own thoughts in their heads. You really don't have to take anything personally from anybody because they're really just repeating what they hear in their head. And it really has nothing to do with you. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about a fun activity you and your husband did, a cruise. You went on a cruise to Mexico, and I'm under the impression it was basically to rekindle your romance and save your marriage. Am I correct? That's the, the impression I was under when I read your book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's just say, you know, we know, we all know people like this who don't have a very good marriage, but yet maybe the husband or the wife is with somebody because and I'm not saying your husband did this for that reason, but obviously your husband was sincere according to the book and our conversations we've had on and off the podcast, but let's just say, oh, let's just say we know someone and they're constantly going places. And yet, you know something a little bit. Oh, are you still there? Oh, sorry. I oh. cut out, but I can hear you again. What's that? I, I can hear you now. Um, you're starting to talk about people that. Yeah, there's something. people that don't have very good marriages, or there's, you know, sometimes the wife or the husband is getting in trouble with certain things, maybe with the law or the jobs or whatever. And, but yet they're going on all these vacations and we start thinking to ourselves, Oh, I think the only reason why Sherry is with Jim is because Jim buys Sherry all these things like nice equipment, maybe nice clothes, nice dresses, a nice car, nice cabinets, nice furniture. And that's, we know people like this. What would you say to someone like that who maybe Jim may not be able to hold down a job very well? Maybe Jim's constantly in trouble with the law or maybe verbally abusive, but yet Jim does all these things for Sherry. We kind of start to wonder, don't we? What would you say to something like that? Oh, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, and, you know, us on the outside, we only see bits and pieces of what's really going on. And so it's, it's easy to kind of just kind of make a, an assumption. But it's possible that for that other person receiving the gifts, that that's actually their love language. So maybe they feel fully loved, cared for because receiving gifts fills up that love tank of theirs. Um, you're probably familiar with Gary Chaps, Chapman's five love languages. Love, I've heard about it. Well, yeah, the five different love languages, like the loving touch or words of affirmation or receiving acts of service or the gifts. And there's a fifth one in there too. Um, oh, the receiving compliments, like words of affirmation. I might've already said that. Um, so it's possible. Um, it could be that that really is the only reason they're hanging on, or it could be that they are dedicated to making the relationship work. And uh, sometimes, I mean, really marriage or any relationship gets really difficult at times. And sometimes you're very hanging on or other times it's thriving and you feel amazing. 
So maybe they're just a very dedicated person that says, okay, I'm willing to work this out. Um, obviously there are times that for your safety or mental, emotional health, that staying in a relationship is not the best idea. Like it, if it's, I mean, if it's harming you, um, then obviously I would say seek counsel and listen, you know, figure it out. And if it's, if you're in danger, uh, please get out of that danger. But for most people, um, it's not like that. It's not quite that scary or difficult. Um, so, I mean, I could, (laughs) there's so many ways to answer that question. So it could be that maybe that person just gets, gets what they want out of the relationship. That's all they need. Or it could be that, um, either way, it sounds like this relationship has a lot of work (laughs) that they need to work on themselves a lot and, and actually reconnect on those deeper levels. Yeah, what, what, how did the cruise, because obviously you and your husband had a good time, how did the cruise help strengthen your marriage? Because you talked about how you went snorkeling, and I don't know if you went scuba diving. Uh, I have gone scuba diving. It was interesting. We'll talk about that later. But uh, yeah, how, how, did, how did you feel about things, and how did it rekindle your marriage? Yeah. So when we had our first baby, she surprised us, came five weeks early. That means she was in the hospital for a couple weeks in intensive care. And I was a brand new mother, um, (laughs) having no sleep at night. And so things, I mean, I was a hundred percent focused on taking care of myself and my baby. And I will admit that I probably didn't add much to the marriage at that point. Cause I was barely like surviving and trying to get the sleep and what I needed. Um, so I probably, I feel like there's, I didn't feel the disconnect or see it, but Eric almost felt like our daughter had replaced him almost. And his background, if you understand, he, he was adopted as an infant. So I think that kind of aggravated that like, oh no, I'm being abandoned or there's no place for me. And, and so he started to dip down into depression and like, nobody cares about me. I'm not wanted anymore. And that was tough for him. But me, I, I wasn't seeing him. I was just seeing like, I need to take care of me and this baby and I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, so he started dipping down low. Um, and the one thing that actually started to lift him back up was that looking forward to creating an amazing experience together. And so he thought in his mind, like, okay, he mapped it all out. It's going to be $5,000, which was a lot for us. We were college students and brand new baby making less than like $2,000 a month. So that was like a huge thing to save up for. And he started to work extra shifts at work and like the, you do Friday night and then go back early Saturday morning, stay till late Saturday night. And then he totally crash on Sunday because he was so exhausted, but he worked so hard because he, something inside him knew that that was the piece that would keep him in the relationship. And So just by that looking forward and working so hard and creating this, that, that brought him up back to that heart level. And, and then we went on that cruise and it was amazing. And we refer back to it so many times 
Um, I didn't realize he had been depressed before then, but looking back and seeing how high just that one-on-one time we had together, it, it was amazing. And from his point of view, it really did save, save our marriage. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, it must've been some cruise because a lot of cruises I look like, look at usually cost anywhere from three to $800. This must've been some cruise that you took. It, it I was guess, though, a basic if it's, cruise. I guess though, if it's $800 for one person, yeah, I guess that's, that's probably. Yeah, it right, was I for guess. the week and he added on the, the parasailing, the scuba diving, um, the chef's oh. table dinner. So he did like everything he could into it. So he added all this amazingness into it. Wow. Now, I, I'll admit, somebody like me, knowing your circumstances would have, you know, you telling me, oh, I'm going to go on this cruise. I would have thought, I might have even said, you're being a little too idealistic here. Look at your money situation. Maybe you should do this once you get a high paying job. Uh, what would you have said to me at that point? Because I, I am a realist by nature. Oh, yes. Um, and when Eric told family members, that was exactly what they said. Like, you are foolish for even trying that. Like, why don't you save that money? Heather would be totally happy just going to the movies and having cake for her birthday. And I'm pretty simple. I'm pretty easy to please. So I honestly would have been okay with that. But within his heart, he knew, no, I must do this. Because one, he had something to look forward to and create, and he loves the ultimate ideal, like the best experience ever. So being able to create that made him feel, first it brought him into that heart space, and then it made him feel like that, like powerful, like, wow, I really can create this. And that was the first time that he'd ever like actually created something that big. He's like, whoa, like if I can do this, like what else can I do? And so really, if he hadn't done that, the path it would have taken him on is he was depressed below heart level. (laughs) He was in college, but uh, not loving it. He just wanted to quit. Yeah, the rugged college years. I know all about it. He he had to push himself. He's like, I, he, he stopped loving it. It just like his heart, he disconnected from his heart. And he was just like, why, what's the point? Why am I doing this? And it's possible that that path would have led to him seeking deeper in depression or just saying, oh, wow, well, Heather doesn't need me now, so I'll just leave. I don't think he would have, but that definitely would have been the thoughts in his mind tearing him down because it was, it was that difficult for him. Um, so him, but since he chose to create this, he had something to look forward to and he had something to work towards. And so he started working extra hard, making twice as much money. If he had followed the depressed route, he would have been making half that amount. So there wouldn't have been any extra money. But since he had something that he was really wanted to create, he started working double time and just as much as he could, bringing in a few extra dollars here and there. And with those extra dollars is what paid for this whole experience. Yeah. Am I wrong in saying that it was probably your second honeymoon? Am I correct? That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been maybe four years after we were married. Yeah. So, yeah. No, sound, yeah. Sounds great. I'm sure now, just as a side note here, were you and uh, 
were you a little depressed? You and Eric a little depressed when you came back because you did all these fun things and now reality hits or were you ready to dive in and conquer the world as the, as we say? You know, sometimes after a large high, there is kind of that deeper low, but I don't remember that for either him or me. I feel like it was such a warm hearted experience memory that I feel like it gave us kind of that hope to move forward and to kind of shift things around. After that, he actually did quit college and moved on to something that he did want to do. And oh, so, yeah, even that got better for him. Very good. I want to talk a little bit about you probably didn't mention this in your book. Well, in fact, I know you didn't because I but I want to get your take on this. And then we have a couple more questions. and I think we're done here. Actually, I'm kind of liking, I think this recording is going better than the last recording. What do you think? Yeah, this is, this is awesome. I'm yeah. loving it. Um, I guess it's a way that we can make lemonade out of lemons, isn't it? Let's just hope this thing exactly. publishes. Anyway, um, let's see here. Okay. Yeah, I want to talk to you about an incident I had with my niece when I was 14 years old. Unfortunately... And I had a very good relationship with my niece at 14. Don't get me wrong. I had a very good relationship. But unfortunately, I was 14. And 14-year-olds 14 get annoyed very easily, don't they? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, have, I have younger brothers, so I totally see that. Yeah. And uh, yes, I will confess, there were times where I was frustrated with my niece because she wouldn't do something that I told her to do or she would come up into my room when I was talking to, well, I didn't have any girlfriends back then, but I was talking to friends of mine about, you know, nice, sexy ladies or whatever. And I didn't want my niece to hear the conversation because she was too young for that kind of talk or whatever. Um, so one day I was at my sister's house in Idaho. This is when I was living in Idaho, but I was at a, at a different city in Idaho and I was at my sister's house. This would have been I believe President's Day weekend, I believe, um, one of those weekends. Anyway, it was a weekend where we had a three-day weekend. I think it was in the early part of February. And I was becoming frustrated with my niece because I told her, look for this, look for this. I knew she was only two years old, but I, I figured she'd, then I showed her, this is what it is. I'm looking for it. It was a battery to my radio. And I loved the radio back then. I was glued to the radio. Everywhere I went, well, when my parents would take trips, I was excited to go on the trip with my parents just because I could listen to different radio stations around the country. Okay, fun. That's, that's how glued I was to the radio. In fact, I got my degree in communication. So that shows you how much I have a passion about the radio. Anyway... Uh, after that incident, my niece was still frustrating me for some reason. And my first instinct was to keep yelling at her, keep raising my voice with her. And I thought, I'm going to try something different. There was a radio station in Idaho near my sister in Payette, Idaho, near where my sister was living. And I happened to know the engineer of this radio station because I met him a few months prior. So I knew what was going on with the station. But I, it was very common at that time to tune into the station and hear nothing but dead air, or as we call in the radio lingo, uh, carrier, where it's just dead air. There's nothing on it, but 
you know, the transmitter is on, but all you hear is dead air. And I was annoyed. And I think I kept thinking, when are you going to finally fix your CD player? Because I knew something was wrong with the CD player and the soundboard. I thought, when are you going to finally fix all this so we don't have to listen to dead air all the time? Because this is getting annoying. And so I tried a new tactic. Um, as frustrated as I was with my niece over her behavior, I said, say K. And she said, K. And I said, I. She said, I. I said, O. She said, O. I said, V. She said, V. And I said, is broke. And she said, is broke. Because she couldn't pronounce her R's back then very well, which is fine. She was only two. <laughs> Uh, and then all the frustration I had towards my niece went away. Uh, what would you say to that? Because it's probably talking a little bit about depression here and what we're talking about, I suppose. Yeah, it seems like you, by focusing on that and saying each letter slowly and calmly, um, either counting or like you said with the letters, um, it's almost like taking a deep breath in calming that mind and getting back into that present moment. Uh, when we get too stuck in the past or future worries, um, that takes us out of feeling that connection, that happy, that connection with ourself. And so by slowing down and speaking to her that way, I feel like you were connecting in that moment and that reconnected you with your heart and you were probably I'm, I'm assuming that you were better able to handle, handle that situation after that moment, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely, because any frustration I had after I told her to say the letters, the call letters of the station and is broke, went away. It was, I thought it was a very weird concept at the time yeah. because I don't even remember what I was frustrated over, probably just kids being little kids and not doing what you wanted them to do or whatever, whatever I was frustrated with just automatically went away. That That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm sure you probably did sim similar tactics with your kids. I suspect. Yeah. Uh, one phrase that I use a lot, like when they come to me crying or upset and they're trying to talk and I can't understand them is I validate. And I, cause I say, I can see that you're having a hard time right now. When you have a calm voice, I can hear you better. And then they are able to calm down and speak clearly. They say, oh, mommy understands me when I speak more clearly. Or more that I validate that you're upset, there's something wrong, I'm listening, if that makes sense. Yeah, now I do want to get into one thing that you wrote about in your book about about your kids apologizing to each other. Let me just uh, talk about a scenario that I experienced when I was 14. My sister and I were at it quite a bit when I was at 14. And there were several reasons for this. This is my youngest sister. I am the youngest kid, but the, my sister, the, my youngest sister is three years older than me. And it seems like we were constantly at it, especially when my parents weren't home. That's when things really, uh, one night, 
my sister, interestingly enough, the one I was talking about, I was staying at her house for the weekend. That sister and my parents were at a, con a concert one night. And I was on the phone talking to somebody, trying to schedule a home teaching appointment. We got into a pretty good conversation because she was a parole officer. So I wanted to know about her experiences dealing with criminals and things like that. And uh, my niece was, like I said, she was two years old. This is a few months before the radio station incident that I was telling you about. And she got into some perfume and started playing with it. And I didn't realize what was going on because I was on the <laughs> phone. And I hung up and realized what just happened. And my sister came and just tore right into me. And I tore right into her back. And that was because of other things that were going on. And, you know, like most parents, any good parent would set you and your sibling down that you were having a problem with and talk things over. And my mom said, I want you to apologize to your sister, but I want you to mean it. Well, I was still angry, and I'll confess at the time, I did not mean it. Yes, my behavior changed, of course, because it had to, but my mind didn't change. It took me a while to change my mind, but at the same time, this behavior had to stop. And what would, because in your book, you talked about apologizing, and you say, well, well I, I know you're not ready to apologize when you're ready, but at some point, if a few days have gone by and you haven't apologized as a kid, what do you do as a parent then? And how would you have handled the situation between my sister and I, if you were my mom? Hmm. Well, I, being completely honest, I only have experience with younger children. So what we do works with them. And as I get into our kids being older, I will probably have to learn more things, but I understand what you're saying. Cause growing up, the one thing that was like, okay, tell them, sorry, I'm sorry, but they yeah. didn't really, you know, didn't really mean it. And so it wasn't really helpful. By the way, saying, for the oh, record, I'm my sorry. sister and I get along very good now, just for the record. Anyway, carry on. That's great. And so I feel that parents have had for so long and say, okay, uh, we can discipline, we can kind of force them almost to say sorry, or there might be like a, okay, now hug each other. And you're both like, uh, no, I can't stand them right now. <laughs> um, but what I found to be effective um, for me and my husband and for our younger children, again, there might be more better tools for helping teenagers. And when I Whoa, I'm sorry for that banging noise. <laughs> uh, but apologizing is what I've learned that helps with us most is there are four steps to effectively, efficiently apologizing. And the first is recognizing that you did something wrong. And my young children, they know this four-step process really well. They, they get to practice it a lot. And basically you say, just now I did whatever I did. Like just now I hurt you that wasn't okay. I apologize. Will you please forgive me? And then the other child has the chance to either say, I'm not ready yet, or yes, I forgive you. And most of the time, especially for young children, they're very quick to forgive and they say yes. And then they give each other a hug and they're happy again. Yes, I think uh, younger children are much more quicker to forgive than teenagers and adults. Just, uh, just a side note. Carry on. Um, and so maybe for a teenager, you could give them that space. But if you have like um, 
rules set in place that when you do something, this is a consequence, then most likely that person would, <laughs> would be experiencing that consequence until they changed their heart and they did sincerely apologize, seek to make it better, and then promise not to do it again. I feel like uh, they would probably sit in that consequence. You know, some people that's grounding, some people that's loss of different privileges, but whatever system you have set up, I feel at home. I feel like this apologizing, this four steps could help enhance whatever you're already doing. That reminds me, my mom actually said, uh, Kevin, you're being punished. So tomorrow, no more, no radio for you. Well, of course, my parents were gone again. So what did I do? I listened to the radio and uh, I was afraid my sister would wrap me out, but she never did. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> but uh, we never, we never got, uh, we never got that abrupt with each other again, ever. I mean, it was pretty ugly. Well, uh, anything you want to go over before I go on to any, any more things you want to talk about relating to this book? Oh, wow. Um, I, I talk a lot about being above that heart level where you're connected to yourself, loving and happy. The ultimate goal is to have that full connection, that joy um, if you're so deep down that that doesn't seem possible, then really just focus on that next step, that next stage right in front of you. But once you get up above heart level and you're like, okay, I'm good. Life's going great. I'm feeling good. I would suggest to make that your next goal to have that full connection, that joy. And it really is possible to live at least most of the time, just feeling joyful and happy and loving and again, if that doesn't seem like a reality, just focus on your next step. But it, yes, and things knock you down. Um, there's going to be a lot of emotions. So even understanding this, um, me and my husband, we, we drop down into some of the levels of depression, but it doesn't, you don't have to get stuck there. You, no, don't, you don't have to feel like it's hopeless. Um, you can move yourself self back up. And the great thing is once you know these patterns is those um, times when you're uh, very low down, they don't have to last very long. They can last minutes or hours. And if really deep, then maybe a couple of days, but it doesn't have to go on for months and years. You really can uh, lift yourself up and start to love your life. I'll tell you what, in 2007, I experienced depression. This was after the summer of 2007, because here again, my roller coaster was pretty high. I guess I can call it a roller coaster. I was pretty high in 2007. I got, uh, didn't get my dream job, but I was sure on my way. I got an internship in Boise, Idaho, working for back then Peak Broadcasting, which is now Town Square Media. And it wasn't my dream job at the station, but my gosh, it was a good step in the right direction. I was on the air twice at the state at uh, one of our stations. I was, uh, I interviewed somebody briefly, but I got to ask a question. I was doing a whole bunch of research. And then I went to Buffalo, New York, right before school started. 
And I was dealing with a lot of things in Buffalo and I came back and was just awfully depressed. You know what it took to get out of that situation, oddly enough? Somebody on the what radio was I was listening to telling us, the radio audience, that he's been depressed a good chunk of that year. And then I just was, I just said a prayer and just told the Lord to help me get out of this. And it worked. Uh, wow. Would you say that that's unusual? Well, that is, that's magnificent. Um, I, f- I wonder if it's because you saw that, oh, I'm not alone in this. Like, it's I think that's okay exactly for what me it to was. feel this way. I think that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Okay. So I think that must have lifted you just enough to pray for that help. And miraculously, that's, that helped lift you up. That's amazing. Yeah, when he said that, I was shocked because I knew this guy in person. <laughs> we had conversations. He even put me on the air as a guest. Uh, the last thing I would have thought is that he was going through depression. So to hear him say that, number one, shocked me. But I think, like you said, it made me realize he was human. I was surprised at how open he was about his depression on the air. Yeah. Now, I don't think he was on, uh, on antidepressants. I, I haven't asked him, but just knowing him, I don't think so. But I think you're right. I think a lot of it just had to do with knowing someone was experiencing something similar uplifted me enough. I think you're right. That's great. I'm so sad. I'm so glad that he was so open. Um, the thing with depression is it's very shameful. So it kind of pushes you into hiding and hiding your feelings someone deep down will say, oh, I'm fine, when really they're not. If you hear that I'm fine, usually that means I'm really deep down. I'm desperate for help, but I can't tell you. Um, So that's kind of difficult. But I think if we can, speaking truth will help to dissipate a lot of that, which is exactly why you want to validate and say, I am feeling this and this is terrible and I don't like it, uh, that helps speak truth and get you at least a little bit less um, in that hiding shameful space, which is exactly why I speak so much about this is if we can lessen the amount of shame that we, we add to people feeling this way, if we can just see them as they are and help lift them up, then I think a lot of people would be so much happier. And I love that you gave this example because most people would look at me, they see a happy, joyful, loving mother, loving my marriage, loving my life. And I really do um, most of the time, but sometimes things get me down. Things hurt me where they're hurtful. And I take things personally too many times. And so there's a percentage of my time that I am down below heart level feeling (laughs) terrible about things. And my husband too. Um, He's very open about like, especially between him and I will say, Hey, um, I'm in stage one. I'm feeling like garbage right now. And Eric will tell me like, okay, validate and help lift yourself up there. And so we're very open with each other on this. And obviously I wrote a whole book, so I'm open to the world and i feel we can yeah say it oh now your book comes out in january correct 
Yes, yes. So where can people contact you if they want the book? Because obviously it's not on Amazon yet. And it, hopefully if I can get this published, it will, you know, if I can get this published, it's not going to be available yet until January. Hopefully this will be published before January. Yes. Um, so if you want to get an advanced copy from me and just send me a little review of how it was helpful, I'm more than happy to. Uh, three ways you can find me. Um, Facebook, I'm Heather Bailey, married to Eric Bailey. Uh, Instagram That's your might Facebook be easier. name, Heather Bailey, yeah, married to Heather Eric Bailey? Bailey. <laughs> no, That's but B-A-I-L-Y. if you find... B-A-I-L-Y, B-A-I... L-E-Y. B-A-I-L-E-Y. If you, Eric's a lot easier to find Eric Bailey. He's usually at the top of the list. And then you can just find me through there. Uh, Instagram's easier. My handle is at ever be better. Or if you want to just go straight to my email, that works great too. It's radiant living at live.com. Okay. Very good. Now, uh, couple more questions. You are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. What is your favorite part about being LDS? Oh, I love so many things. Um, I love that, really, I love our prophet's message of joy and hope and just knowing that what we do now will help, help us. Just having that eternal perspective of all of these challenges, all of these difficulties, they, they're not for naught. Uh, they are here to help us learn and grow, become better. And I know that every ounce of energy and love and everything I put into my marriage and my family, that's strengthening that bond. And I get to be with them forever. And so I'm putting my whole heart and soul into our relationships because I want them to last forever. I love having that perspective. It's been so helpful in my life. Yeah. And do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Not currently, but most of my life I've been the piano player. So young women's or relief society. Um, My most recent was playing piano for the primary. Oh, okay. What is your all-time favorite song to play on the piano? I my favorites are anything Chopin. He has amazing. I love listening to his things, and they're ridiculously difficult to learn. <laughs> but yeah. when when I can play them, wow, it's amazing. Okay, very good. Well, anything else that you want to talk about before we end this podcast? By the way, if you don't mind, stay with me here uh, when I end the podcast. I want to talk to you about something, but anything else you want to talk about? You know, I really just want people to know that there is hope for them, that no matter how deep down they are or how much they're hurting, that healing can happen and that if they focus on that next step and moving up, that there is hope for them. And they can feel connected and loved and loving and even happy. And then after that, they can move up more and feel joyful and love their life there. But no matter how low you are, there's always hope. There are always people that care about you and you can do this. Yeah, absolutely. With that note, uh, we'll go ahead and end the podcast. 
I apologize. I have not gotten a podcast up in a while because I've been having technical difficulties. I think it's where I'm at. Uh, If this happens again, I will start making noise. But in the meantime, I will talk to you later, folks.